Melissa Mays and her sons were dramatically affected by the lead in Flint's water. She says she now takes 18 separate prescriptions just to stay alive. On this episode of Created Equal, we hear from one of the most outspoken activists in Flint, Melissa Mays. We founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Our next guest is Melissa Mays. She is the founder of What Are You Fighting For? A wonderful play on words. Uh, She has three kids and takes 18 separate prescriptions to stay alive. She also coordinated legal efforts to force Michigan to replace lead-infected water lines here in the city of Flint. Melissa, welcome to the show. Let's give her a hand. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you went viral uh, early on for being out front and really vocal about all of this. Uh, tell, us the, tell us the story of how this crisis came to affect you. So I wasn't born in Flint, so I, we moved up here in 2001. My job had transferred me, and we're from the south, so we had well water, which was like the worst. So we get city water, and we're like, wow, this is so different. It doesn't smell like rotten eggs. It's, it's great. This is wonderful. Our water was fine. Uh, 2014, they switched to the Flint River. I'm like, okay, it smells gross, but you all have a treatment plant and you say that it's gonna be just fine, you know more than me, my background, my degrees are in business and PR um, and marketing. So, um, you know, I don't know anything at the time about water treatment or water chemistry and how badly it can go when you don't do your jobs. So, you know, we, we didn't really have discolored water and that's unfortunate because the people who had orange and brown water were lucky. And I know that sounds really weird, but the orange and brown water is iron corrosion. And that's a heads up, because people weren't sitting here chugging glasses of brown water. We were drinking clear water. And unfortunately, lead, a lot of bacteria, and a lot of contaminants, they have no color, no odor, no taste. So as I was working out in the gym with a friend of mine, um, going four to five days a week, filling up my gallon jug, because I didn't believe in bottled water. I didn't want somebody else. I was like, my water's just fine. They say it's just fine. So I was filling that up before going to the gym. And I was working with a nutritionist. I was on no medications. And, and I drank a gallon to a gallon and a half of water a day because I was trying to be healthy. And I uh, guess that got me pretty good. Same with my kids. Didn't let them have pop. Didn't let them have the sugary juices. They were outside running around playing in the water, in the pools, in the, in, and you know, washing the car, doing all the things that you would in water, not knowing how bad it actually was. My young, our youngest, my husband's here, um, and he's uh, to, who I credit for the name What Are You Fighting For? He's an artist and does all of our artwork and website and came up with the name. I only came up with Flintgate for my Twitter because I was like, that's kind of clever because Watergate was taken, ha ha. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so our youngest got pneumonia September of 2014. Um, our middle child that same month had fallen off his bike and his wrist buckled, his, the bones in his wrist buckled, didn't know why had no clue. And the doctor didn't know. We were lucky, however, that um, our pediatrician uh, gave my, our, our son the uh, right antibiotic, because there's only certain antibiotics that work with Legionnaires. Um, we don't know if he had Legionnaires. We'll never know, because the antibodies only last in your system for a year. So by the time it all broke, it was past a year that my, my son, and I think about it, he could have died. He could have died. You know, we didn't know. And because usually the doctors don't ask you about Legionnaires unless you have a hot tub or near a commercial air conditioner, which we don't. And, uh, but we do shower. 
and uh, despite some news reports, we, we, we are clean people. Um, so, um, so yeah, January of 2015, I was actually going through my third round of antibiotics for an upper respiratory infection that wouldn't go away. Got the letter in the mail that said, dear resident, for the past nine months, your water has been contaminated with a cancer-causing byproduct called total trihalomethanes. Didn't know what that word meant. Hit Google, because that's what you do. And um, it said, but just probably fine. Check with your doctor. I called my doctor, and he said, I have no idea what that is. And, you know, come in, let's do some tests. And that's when they started noticing the autoimmune stuff. And, you know, I started having the tremors, seizures, all these things started happening. Um, well, that January 9th, I believe, um, we, uh, we were looking online to see if other people on Facebook were talking about it. Saw a first post for a protest, which was put up actually by, um, I manage bands and I was a tour manager for years as well. Um, she actually was doing a protest. I'm like, oh, that's kind of scary. Those people are kind of nuts. The media made them look crazy. I don't want to go to jail. But he, uh, my husband Adam made like the coolest um, protest posters ever. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to take off work. Let's go. You know, <laughs> let's go do this. And we did in the snow. It was freezing. And then I realized meeting people like Tony Palladino and uh, our council person, Eric Mays, and all all of these other people that lived different parts of towns, different ages, races, genders, same problems, losing their hair, rashes, headaches, tremors, stomach problems. And so, you know, in my head, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, an artist. So we started doing, and I used to say bootleg epidemiological study, but I was told by um, a, a PhD that I actually adore, it's called public epidemi or um, uh, popular epidemiology. We started charting and making maps about where the water problems were, the dis different places where there's discoloration, the different places where people were having health problems in conjunction, and we were also tracking costs. So, and this map was used in actually a few studies, and actually it's how we set up the study um, down the line for the Virginia Tech testing, was we decided to show that it wasn't just one area, it's the entire city. So that's kind of how it just snowballed and actually reached out during that time in January to Erin Brockovich, because that's what you do when you have bad water. <laughs> and she connected me with uh, Bob Bocock, who then I started getting documents from the water treatment plant, sending them to him. I have no idea what I'm looking at, what raw water data means and the different chemicals they put in every month. And so he started explaining, this is bad. And he came to Flint <laughs> Valentine's Day. We did a huge march. 10 degrees, snow blowing sideways, he's from California. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. And taught every word that comes out of my mouth, science came from Bob and Aaron. And um, he's the one on Valentine's Day that told us, you know, about what orange and brown water meant, but how clear water was way more dangerous and deceptive and that we needed to start testing for lead. So yeah, at the end of February we, of 2015, we went door to door taking these test kits that we got from um, the, the plant supervisor at the water treatment plant because they live in Flint and wanted answers as well. And they already knew and nobody was listening to them. So we decided, all right, well, we got to be our own media. We got to be our own scientists. And so we started going door to door and it's not stopped. Um, 1,905 days later. Wow. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> in April of this year, uh, you told NPR, in some ways we're better. In other ways, we're forever poisoned, damaged, traumatized. That's not ever going to be better. No. I mean, we're better in the fact that it's shown a light on the absolute destructive policies that are in place, like the emergency manager law. I mean, that's how you wreck a city. That's how you bankrupt a city, and that's how you get rid of a city. That's how you empty out a city. You take away their democracy, they, you take away their voices, and you make the policies all point towards the bottom line. Uh, March of 2015, there was a vote by city council to get off the Flint River. The emergency manager said, no, it's too expensive. 
did not care that people were dying, did not care that you know, January of 2015, I went to my first city council meeting ever and was talking about all the health problems and all of the data that we gathered and demanded an epidemiological study, which a month before that, didn't know what that was. Um, but that's one of the things that we had pushed for, which we still don't have. Like right now, I, you know, I, I'm on a, a liquid soft food diet for the next uh, four to uh, nine months because I've got I, diverticulitis in my gallbladder. And when you talk to other people, you know, there's people that are younger than me, I'm 40, that have lost their gallbladders already because it's your filter having liver problems, having kidney problems, bladder problems, because you drink lead and these other contaminants, and it's just going to wreck everything as you go. And then also the tremors, the weird MRIs, the, the fact that, you know, we have all of these similar things, and we're screaming for people to listen to us and hear us. And the CDC came in because the state didn't ask them until April of 2016, did a CASPER study, which went door to door to ask questions. 90% of people had rashes and other health problems. But because nobody cares, you know, that, that to go further, there's nothing that came of it besides, okay, well, we'll get some funding to figure out what's going on with these rashes. Nothing. Nothing happened. We begged. We tried to apply for funding ourselves for, um, for water testing in conjunction with blood, skin, hair, toenail testing. Because toenails should go back 18 months to show not only what you're contaminated with, but what your body load, what your body's holding on to. We've asked for bone scans. We've asked for all of these things. And no. Sorry. And so, so that's how we're not better because, you know, we would love to get up and take care of ourselves, but we are, I have no health insurance. As loud as my mouth is and with all of my problems, I have to pay for my prescriptions, my visits. I was ordered to go have another ultrasound. I can't afford it. I have to wait and save up for it. I have to call around to say, what's the best deal you can give me on an abdominal ultrasound? So it's kind of hard to take care of yourself and that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps when they won't even give you your boots. You don't even have that. And of course, that's obviously, you know, not even possible. It's a ridiculous statement. But the fact of the matter is that we're not better because they won't let us be better. They're doing everything to knock us down. Tell us everything is fine. We're, we're hearing on the news, oh, your water's fine. My shower this morning smelled like burnt hair and ammonia. What's that? Nobody can tell me. Nobody can tell me why. We're still getting the, the bacterial infections. My husband had some massive two back-to-back. -back. He had to get um, uh, injection antibiotics for bacterial infections. Nobody wants to talk about it. They want us to shut up and go away. But thankfully, we have some loud people. So, <laughs> um, I, I wonder if you can talk about, as a mom, uh, <laughs> how this has affected your family or children. Dr. Mona uh, said it's mothers in every story that, that end up being the champions here. Uh, moms fighting for their kids and fighting for every other kid. These moms are experts. Um, and that's awesome because it's true. Like, I know my kids. I know what's going on with my kids. I actually, so I, I do, so I have two jobs and I, um, I do social work for our community mental health. And it's, it destroys my heart every day I go into work because mothers are like, they're telling me that my kids are bad that they have, you know, oppositional, oppositional defiance disorder. And I, my kid's not, he's not getting it. So now we have a screening process through lawsuits because anything we have, by the way, was not given to us. We had to sue for it, which is absurd. To get the pipes replaced, we had to sue for 18 months and then go through three months of hell, pardon me, um, that was, which was mediation, to be told basically we're, we're, we're not worth any money, okay? Uh, mind you, we also get told, and as a mother, it kills me, that they're just like, well, you should have known. You should have taken better care of your children. It's your fault this is happening. You guys are poor in Flint. You get what you deserve. Maybe you shouldn't be buying them TVs and cell phones and paying your water bill. Number one, if I wasn't paying my $300 a month water bill right now, uh, I want my water to be shut off and I wouldn't be poisoned. So how about that? Hooray. Um, also, 
bite me because they told me, these experts are supposed to be smarter than me with my business degrees, they've got their science degrees, that everything was fine. And so now that everything's not fine, that they're saying that it's fine, still fine, always apparently fine, or not as bad as you think it is, <laughs> my sons who had no medications, they took gummy vitamins, gave them all the water I could. You have no idea what it's like, unless you live here, um, to sit there and see your children crumble, to see your sons grow up. They're six foot one. They're six foot and six foot. I have three beautiful boys. One of them hates his hair because it's, it fell out and it started growing back completely different. And he didn't have his long rocker hair that he loved. It now grows out like this. And it bothers him because he's 16 and he worries about his appearance. Um, my youngest, got, he, he hates taking showers because he thinks that the water makes him smell worse than he would not showering. He's 15 and he's, you know, gross. He's a teenage boy. But then on the other hand, he comes out with rashes. Hurts my eyes, mom. Gives me a headache, mom. And I'm like, okay, so we have this like Frankenstein double shower head filter my husband has to invent to, you know, to try to make it less horrible on them. But there's no shower head filters that filter out all of the contaminants we have to deal with, or tap filters, by the way. So also I have an issue with the, the all filters. Anyhow, so I mean, I'm seeing my kids taking these medications. I'm seeing my sons. I just had to take my youngest to the neurologist. I sat there just furious because one, I feel guilty. I'm like, I, I should have just given them Mountain Dew. I should have just given them pop. I should have just did this. But no, I'm trying to be a good mom. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> these are my pride and joy. And, 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 and you know, you can poison me, whatever. I, you know, at the time I'm like, I'm 36, I'm old. I've lived a good life, it's fine. But you mess with my babies. And they worked so hard to get into dual enrollment schools, to get college classes at the same time they're taking high school classes. And now I'm watching them struggle, needing tutors, possibly failing, beating themselves up because they can't remember the stuff they did the night before, or they can't sit there and focus in class, or they're too sick and tired. My kids miss so many days of school because they can't get out of bed. They walk like they're 80. Two of my sons have really expensive orthotics in their shoes. They have to because they're not growing right. Because here's something nobody talks about. Everybody focuses on the kids that are under the age of six because, by the way, that's the only research that's been done about lead. Um, so my sons, if, if, you, if you're between the ages of nine and 14, your growth plates are open and spongy. Your growth plates are from your neck down to your feet and allow your muscles and your joints to grow and stretch along with those bones when you hit those really expensive growth spurts where you don't know who your kid is the next day because he's now six foot. Um, my sons and so many other children's uh, when med, uh, metals like lead um, get stored in those open spongy growth plates and cause them to harden prematurely. So my sons had to go through physical therapy and be in suffering pain to have somebody else pull their joints and muscles for them. So yeah, there are no words. There are no words. And when you hear, get over it, Flint's better, what do you guys, you guys have your hand out, you guys aren't doing enough. Well, first of all, the people are doing uh, pretty much all of it because the state who did this to us is in charge of our recovery, which is why we don't have one, and will not give us the things that we need. So, you know, as we're watching individually, we're watching the suffering, we're watching our neighbors. We're watching how, wow, I've had a lot of neighbors die. What's going on with that? You know, and then you're watching these things clear out. And okay, now we've got blight. We have empty houses. People lost their house because they couldn't pay their water bill. This, this, that, and all the other things. And you're just like, there's too many things to start with, but you start at home. You start with the health and you start with what's coming through your taps. And you're like, okay, this has to stop. So, um, so yeah, as a mom, that's why I did this. I, I've never done, you know, protesting or anything, speaking out, policy. Politics was not my thing. Music was. And so, yeah, as a mom, I'm like, I can't let you do this to my sons anymore, and I can't let you do this to anybody else's sons or daughters. Thank you. Thank you. Lastly, I wonder what you think has to happen. The thing I hear in your voice and feel from you just sitting next to me is 
not just anger or frustration, but but deep distrust. Oh. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it seems as though that, that this has caused that distrust. But, you know, the question is always then what has to happen or what could happen that would make you trust again? Um, well, first would be the easy answer. Replace every single piece of destroyed infrastructure from the water treatment plant all the way up to every single tap, every single fixture in the house, every single appliance, everything that got wrecked. That's just common sense. We had to sue and all we could get was service lines because the Safe Drinking Water Act doesn't cover anything else. But it doesn't matter. You broke it, you fix it. Okay, easy, easy solution. I will not trust the water until that happens. I actually was asked, what will it take for you to trust the water? Mm -hmm. Every single piece of plumbing, gone. That was wrecked. And then, um, then also, uh, every single home tested for all dangerous contaminants and coming back zero. And then I'll, I said, then I'll think about it. But also to trust the people, that's going to be interesting for me. Experts are closed in their little box. The people, the residents of Flint are the actual experts. If you go door to door like we have, the people that you hear, the words, the chemistry, the, the laws, the policies that we've all had to study and learn, even if we didn't want to, I didn't want to, um, that made us the experts. Our lived experience, even if we don't know the right words, made us the experts. We are open to learn, so please use our expertise. But instead, and that's another issue with the media, is that they go to the PhDs who go with what they know. But they also don't live here, and they also don't see this firsthand. And then they refuse, and they try to shut down the residents. And that's another reason why there's only 15 to 20 of us, because a lot of people gave up or got too sick, got tired of being ignored, or got run off. Listening to us, doing what we need you to do, giving us health insurance for God's sake. I'm seeing too many people like suffer and die because of this. Not making us pay these insanely ridiculously expensive, the most expensive in the United States, water bills for this. Giving us back our bottled water until all the infrastructure is replaced. And then even then, I want a whole home filtration system because I'm not gonna trust a damn thing you put through those pipes. And then, you know what, everybody get out. I want to see people in jail for what they did because that tells us that you're not allowed to poison us and get away with it. And our lives actually mean something. So until those things happen, I'm not trusting anything anybody says unless they hand me a stack of black and white facts so I can read it myself and make my own decisions. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was afraid. No, no, no. I apologize. Most amazed. Thanks very much Thank you. Uh, for being here. Melissa Mays is a mother of three, a water activist in Flint and founder of the group Water You Fight For. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the public radio reporter who documented exactly what happened in Flint, step by step, in an award-winning documentary. The failure of the EPA and specifically of the DEQ. If they had done their job correctly, then the water crisis wouldn't have happened. Lindsay Smith is the Michigan radio reporter who detailed exactly what happened in Flint leading up to that city's water crisis. 
Her hour-long documentary, Not Safe to Drink, won a National Edward R. Murrow Award and many other honors. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with investigative reporter Lindsay Smith. Founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Lindsay Smith is Michigan Radio's investigative reporter. Her 2015 documentary about the Flint water crisis, Not Safe to Drink, won the station a number of very big national awards, including the Edward R. Murrow Award, an Alfred, Alfred DuPont Columbia University Award, and a Third Coast Richard Driehaus Award. If you were here in Michigan as the uh, water crisis unfolded, Lindsay's name is not unfamiliar to you. I can't think of many more journalists whose work was more critical in unearthing what was going on and then chronicling, you know, this this prolonged response to to the tragedy, the 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 slow pace at which the state actually got involved to do things, the, the consequences that unfolded for the people who live uh, in Flint and now of course today, uh, we still have these uh, these lingering issues. Lindsay was at the center of all of that. Tell us how you learned that something was wrong with the water in Flint and how you decided uh, to start reporting about it. So the first time I, I learned about the crisis or I felt like I did some of my own reporting about it was in January of 2015. So it was about nine months or so after the switch. Our newsroom is, we have a base in Ann Arbor, but we also have a bureau in Grand Rapids in Flint and Detroit. And so I was out in West Michigan and I just Skype into the news meeting every day at nine o'clock in my pajamas mostly, you know, and I just have my face there. Um, And so we had a reporter in Flint who reported about the Flint, uh, the switch, about the emergency manager takeover. Um, A lot of, like, right away, there was people showing up with jugs of gross water. And he was, like, filing stuff on that pretty, I mean, semi-regularly. I mean, you know, it's news the first couple of times, but then after a while, and everybody says it's safe, like, definitely this coverage kind of died down. And then GM switched off of the water. So I knew about that. But... The first thing I really reported on was U of M Flint's campus did some water tests that they were looking for, um, something that was not lead, a byproduct of too much chlorine. And in those tests, they found really high lead. And we reported on that, but I didn't, but we didn't, we didn't get it yet. But that was the first time I, I remember reporting on that specifically. And then... The significant thing that happened was, at least as far as, for me, the moment that I realized is um, in July of 2015 when Kurt Guyette at the ACLU got a hold of a memo that the EPA a worker in Chicago had, had written an internal memo that really outlined It was a lot of red flags about this one woman's house in Flint. And basically he was saying, if this is happening in this one woman's house, this is happening all over Flint. And I remember reading that. It was like a 4th of July weekend or like holiday weekend. And I remember saying like, oh my God, if this is, if this is true, that's really, like, that's a really big deal. But the EPA wouldn't talk. 
the city wouldn't really talk. They didn't really know what was going on. So then we called the state um, and, and tried to kind of nail down whatever we could from there. So I think that's, that's I mean, 2015 was really the first time that I picked up anything. Yeah. Uh, and did you imagine at that point that it would sort of balloon to the point that it did, that it would be this story that would unfold over several years uh, and, and take you guys to all of the all of the work that you did? No, I no, I don't think that we did. I mean, so my frame of a little bit of my my frame coming into this particular emergency manager thing, I saw it as just another example of emergency managers gone bad. So in West Michigan, I first initially covered Benton Harbor, the city. And when Rick Snyder passed PA4, when he took office, um, you know, people were protesting down there like crazy. They, there was all kinds of things that were happening in the city. And like after a while, like nobody cares. And it just kind of goes away. And to the and so the same thing happened with Muskegon Heights Public Schools. Um, the school board, the locally elected school board said, we can't, we're running out of money. We can't even afford a superintendent. We want an emergency manager. The emergency manager came in, laid everybody off hired a, a for-profit charter school company to run the entire district top to bottom. It didn't go great. And again, like it just nobody, it like nobody cared <laughs> or just like, you know, it just didn't pick up steam. So I think when I saw what was going on in Flint, I, I really looked at it as like, okay, they're building this new pipe. They're going to have water from Lake Huron again in what, a year and a half at the time, right? We thought it would get done by then. Like, they're just going to try to ride this out until they get the new pipeline, and then it'll be fine, and like, whatever. That's really what I felt like what was going to happen. Um, so I had no idea, though, the kinds of cover-ups and, like, fudging of numbers and um, ignoring obvious health risks that was going on at the time. Yeah. So... There, it was like move, it, to me. It was like moving the Titanic. It was like, oh, we're gonna switch back. We can't do that. You know, it didn't seem possible. <laughs> and, and walk us through as a reporter how you uh, how you deal with uh, the, the 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 particular response here, which, um, as you point out, was to say, well, this is not as big a deal as maybe you're making it, or this is not as big a deal as people think it is, uh, or to cover things up and to lie. Uh, about what's happening. I mean, as a journalist, how do you push through to get to the truth? Well, we got really lucky that they put so much stuff in emails, and we got lucky that they put raw data in emails, and we also got lucky that we had scientists and medical professionals who could do something, make something of that data, right? Like, I... I could have never put together what a 90th percentile was before. I'm just not, I'm a political science major. I do not do that stuff. But now I know more about lead and copper than you could ever <laughs> want to know about it. Um, you know, I think the other thing was knowing this, like I said, because I had this context, I really looked at this as an emergency manager problem. And so I knew that Treasury Department folks that were really in control, um, and, I've, and I, I think if I did anything, I really tried to push that to say, 
you know, to make this obvious that this was done for money and that you had a state checks and balance situation where, you know, had the city of Flint applied to switch to the Flint River instead of a state-appointed emergency manager applying to a state department to get approval um, in kind of a sweetheart deal, I, I don't think the DEQ would have been as willing to support something like that that Flint would have put together. Just a guess. I don't, you know, I just... I, th I think that there's a loss of checks and balances there, and I had seen it happen in other communities. So when I talk about shifting the Titanic, you know, it was clear that if they weren't using the corrosion control, that this lead was getting out, it was already showing an increase in kids, and they had another year before they were gonna get that pipeline ready. And it was people like Mona, Dr. Mona, and Mark Edwards, and some others who kept pushing really us with the backing to say like, no, it's all here, the data is here, this has been done before in Washington, D.C. People were poisoned. You, you, you have got to scream it from the rooftops. This brought you into contact with a lot of the people in Flint as well who were dealing with what had happened. Talk about the things that you saw and the things you learned from the families who were affected. It's a really, it's like, you know, when you lose your power for like, you know, 24, 36 hours, say, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I have to do this or I have to do this this way. Like you can figure it out, you can live. But it's, um, for some people, it's way more stressful than others. I think their sense of normalcy and, you know, depending on what your background is, that being able to trust what comes out of your tap or what health officials are telling you, when you take that, it, it's like it rips the foundation away um, from a lot of people individually. And then as a community, it can make you really cynical. In a community, it's sometimes, you know, a community that already has some skepticism, right? of the system and how they were treated in the first place. So, um, you know, some of these people that, like, especially after the crisis, when the solution was, you know, um, going around and putting filters, faucet filters on people's um, homes, I hung out with these teams of residents that would go door to door. Um, and going into people's kitchens and, like, you know, you, you just sort of get a feel for, like, this person has so much stuff on their plate. They, they haven't changed this filter since they got it four months ago. It's definitely no good anymore. It's like disgusting in there. And then there's like other people that you walk in the house and you know, there's clearly like major infestations and like kitchens that are falling apart. And you're like, well, you've got to change your filter twice a week or whatever it is. It just seems so, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to like relay the disconnect or sort of the, the lack of resources and how challenging it can be to have something as basic as water and not be able to trust it. Uh, talk about trying to unearth those stories for your reporting. How do you get people in those situations to trust you when they're already not trusting uh, government officials who've lied to them, who've not done their jobs? Uh, how do you win that, uh, that faith from them? Mm, um, I try to be as transparent as possible. I always am with all my sources, no surprises. You will know before anybody else knows what I'm doing, you know, how I'm handling things, where I'm at with my process. Um, 
I spent the the main person that we filed for the documentary was Leanne Walters because she was the house that was documented by the EPA, and she is in in many ways the canary in the coal mine. And I think being able to spend, I mean, I spent so much time with that woman. So <laughs> I think that's the other thing is just being able to spend time, not being in a hurry, um, hanging out, getting your kid. I mean, I love her kids. They're so adorable. <laughs> and they really like me too now. So um, I think that, I mean, that's my biggest way that I keep trust. But it's still, I would still say it's difficult. Um, and every event that we have, we actually, we're actually having a, an event there right now. Um, in Flint. And it's always like, it's this dance of you want to include people, you want to be inclusive um, and not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Exploitive. You know, um, I wanted people to feel ownership of their own story mm. and what was important to them. And a lot of it has to do with like what they believe or not. I mean, some people don't believe the science anymore. So if you put facts in front of them or science and they say, you know, sorry, I don't trust that. You, I, I have to accept them for, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't be like, well, you know, um, and give them a lecture about it. Um, just trying to understand where they're coming from so we can maybe bridge some of those gaps. But tell us more about Leanne Walters for people who maybe have not heard all of the, all of the reports. Yeah, so Leanne Walters is just an amazing mama bear. She, um, she, you know, she's, it's hard to describe her. She's very headstrong. She's, um, she's, she was fired from a job once for like an elderly care thing for, um, calling it out, calling out abuse. And she was reporting too many people, too many of her coworkers and stuff, I guess. So she finds these ways, like, she just is like, nah, this is who I am. And I tell the truth. I don't get over it. Um, so she started showing up at the city council meetings with these and there's all these infamous photos of her with her brown water jugs um, and her tongue ring and her, you know, and she's got like blue hair half the time. She's, um, and she's not going to go quietly. She kept calling them. Um, she had, her kids had all kinds of skin problems. One has a, she has twins, so she has an immunodeficient, um, uh, he has some problems already health-wise. And he was suffering more than her, than his twin, than his twin brother. So to her, it was like fairly obvious that one twin was not doing well over this period of time. And um, she called the city, got her water tested. It came back at 100 and I want to say 115 parts per billion, which is, you know, zero is considered safe. You don't, I mean, there's no level that is acceptable. They say 15 parts per billion. That is a treatment standard. That is not a health standard. So, um, and it's a community standard. It's not for like your house. So you really don't want to have blood in your water at all. So 115 was like really, really high. And the guys, the city guys told her, I, we've never seen this before in the city. Um, don't give it to your kids. And so they got it retested um, just to make sure it wasn't a fluke test. And it came back at 350 parts per billion, even higher. So Mama Bear wasn't happy, and then they ended up shutting off her water, putting a garden hose to her neighbor's house, stringing it into her window to give her access to water. I don't, I, yeah, and she's still, it's not going to shut her up. Um, so she started researching late at night uh, what chemicals the city was putting in the water, and she's researching all this stuff about corrosion and 
she's the one that figured out that the city was not using phosphate, orthophosphates in the water. And she is the one who told the EPA that. So the state environment department basically told her, um, or well, they told the EPA, of course they're treating the water. Um, And so he believed him. So he went down to her house, the EPA guy from Chicago, and checked to make sure plumbing wasn't in her house. It turns out she had totally replaced all of the plumbing in her house, so she didn't have old plumbing. And they got even higher lead results, 1,500 parts per billion. It's just like it kept getting worse. So they ended up ripping out the lead service line, this lead pipe that went, usually it goes right in front of your house, right, or to the side. Well, for hers, it was something weird about the city. It went all the way down the block. So she had this super long service line, and it was all lead. So um, so that's how she became the canary in the coal mine, and she didn't back down. Um, you know, she got that memo from the EPA and was basically like, I'm going to start telling reporters. And he was like, if you must, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, Miguel's a great guy, um, but I don't think he was prepared to be called the rogue EPA person and be really sequestered internally. I didn't get to talk to him for six months before they let any reporters talk to him after the crisis, after that memo came out. So yeah, so she's been just a pretty unstoppable force. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, more of my conversation with Lindsay Smith. You said earlier that um, for you, initially, this was uh, a case of you know emergency management gone bad and, and looked like something you'd seen in some other communities. Um, but we also here have these two environmental uh, agencies, governmental agencies, who were supposed to, even under yep. uh, emergency management, perform their duties competently. The EPA and the DEQ. Uh, in a lot of your reporting, I feel like you kind of unearthed the ways in which they did not do their jobs. To, uh, talk about the failures at at that level. Yeah, sure. It gets a little technical, but basically, I mean, like I said, I I wanted, I was like prepared for this to be like money, a story about money. And and there may still be, I mean, obviously the criminal investigations are still going on. There may be money aspects that have not been uncovered yet. But what I decided through the reporting and what the focus of Not Safe to Drink, the documentary, ended up being about was about the failure of the EPA and specifically of the DEQ because if they had done their job correctly, then the water crisis wouldn't have happened, I think. Being... So even after the emergency manager makes this decision, you feel like EPA and DEQ had an opportunity to catch it. Well, I think they could have initially probably stopped the Flint switch to the river without, I mean, the city employees, you know, the head water manager has said, he was saying, we are not ready. You will start this plant over my objections. So there's your first failure, right? And and secondly, there's some technical failures that they didn't follow um, having to do with testing the water before you make the switch. Um, at the time, the PIO for the, or the, the like spokesperson for the DEQ was telling me, 
you know, it's like a cookie recipe. You don't know how much sugar and chocolate chips to put in until you bake them or something like that. Like, that's a quote I got once. That's not how I bake cookies. Oh, man, dude. I was like, huh? Um, but, but so anyway, the EPA has made it much more clear since Flint that if you are going to make a switch like this from a giant body of water that's a pretty consistent source and you are using chemicals to prevent leaching and you switch to a different source, even if it is, say, a Lake Michigan, you still need to run tests and do loop tests on pipes so that you make sure you know what your recipe is before you switch. DEQ had argued that they had a period of time once they made the switch to make that recipe or like make it work by a certain deadline. And that's what I mean by, like, I think they would have just rode it out as long as they could to get them back to on the, the other water. Yeah. Oh. Do you feel like um, since then? Well, oh, and that, yeah, and ahead. they dropped water tests that they shouldn't have, which was a big deal. Like, Leon Waters, uh, high results, they wiped them off of the of the water quality, like the calculation, the 90th percentile. So... They had, they didn't get enough samples. They were supposed to collect 100 samples. They didn't get 100 samples. Well, so then the DEQ said, well, actually, you only have 99,000 people. You don't need 100 samples. You only need 60. So you're good. So they got 60, and, but they had a few that were too high. And so they looked at them and they were like, well, you know, this one is a business. Technically, that's not, you're not supposed to test businesses for this calculation. So they dropped that one, even though it was high. And then the other one they dropped was Leanne's because they said she had a filter, which is so counterintuitive. It like defies, you know, kind of common sense. But the reason they try to do that is because they don't want, they want the worst case scenario sample. So you don't want to have somebody with a filter taking your samples. But she had disconnected the filter and it wasn't even a lead filter. It was like one of those whole house, um, like osmosis-y type yeah. or something like that. Anyway, that was another like major problem. And I think that there are lots of ways that water systems can get around these tests. And DEQ has pushed um, for Michigan to get the highest uh, lead standards in the country, which we now have. This summer is going to be a hugely important summer for that because this is the summer that what's called something called the fifth liter kicks in. Essentially, the way they're testing water at homes that have lead service lines out in the front, they'll be looking for the water that was sitting in the service line instead of what was just sitting in the sink in, when you first open the tap. Mm. Um, so I think we'll have a better idea of how bad the lead is in some communities in Michigan because, not because they have worse water, but because we will be testing for it and we'll looking for it better. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. That's a great segue to my next question, which is whether you think we have fixed the errors that caused EPA and DEQ to fail in, in Flint. I mean, have we done enough to make sure that <clears throat> this kind of thing couldn't really happen again? I think that, I mean, if the DEQ had followed the existing lead and copper rule, I, I don't think it would have happened nearly as bad. Um, the fact that we've made it more stringent on, on municipalities, um, I think is going to be 
really important. Um, the holes that I see are still in schools, daycares, uh, you know, facilities with uh, the elderly people. Um, you know, it, it can it tends it tends to cause increase in, in blood pressure in some instances. She talks about this in the book. Um, so I've met people that have had like a eye problems and that kind of thing from high blood pressure, just spikes, that kind of thing. So I just, I think it can go unreported and especially in like smaller communities, older communities, I really think anybody that, first of all, find out if you have lead in your pipes. Um, and then second of all, if you have it, I highly recommend getting a filter just because you never know when it will release. It's basically like a little... A little time bomb in there, you know, those flakes can come off even if you are treating your water properly. Um, even if you get one test back that says you're good to go, if that's in the ground, like I wouldn't be feeding my infants that for sure. So, so they are replacing the lead lines yeah. in Flint. Some other communities have said they're interested in doing Well, and the, the state has rule, now, as part of the new yeah. rule, says you have to. But you you have, have communities who are saying, sure, we it's going to be expensive. It's too expensive. You it will take the, time. Five yeah. communities sue the state to try, yeah. to, right. to, try to get out of, of that. Is that the only fix? Is that the only way to really be sure that, uh, that there isn't the potential for lead? I think, I mean, I think if you're talking about lead in drinking water, getting rid of those lead service lines are a huge part of the equation. Um, and getting the money and the time, the resources to do that is going to be big. Yes, there is lead in plumbing, lead in solder. Uh, up until 20, I want to say 14, you could still have some lead in faucets that were meant for drinking water even sometimes saying lead-free. They weren't actually lead-free, brass pipes and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think it'll linger on, but those, to me, it's, it, it's such just that pure lead pipe that's sitting in the ground is just, as long as it's there, the potential for the treatment to be wrong or the water temperature or another thing that can really cause problems is physical disturbances. So if they tear up your road... Um, you know, and all those jackhammers or whatever, like it, it loosens up lead particles, shakes lead right? It shakes it off. Right. And if you don't have a filter, you know, um, and you're mixing juice and you don't see it, I don't, you know what I'm saying? The other thing is like, you can see little flakes, but, uh, soluble lead in water, you can't see or taste or smell at all. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wonder sometimes whether the smart thing might just be for all of us to use filters all the time in our houses, which is not filters a have their role, own right? uh, set of bacterial problems. You do have to change them regularly, right, and right. Um, you know not everybody has. You know, there's there's can be problems Expense, with that. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, in other kind of barriers, language barriers, and physical you know physical barriers. Um, some people don't have sinks that work right, or if you have a Brita filter and it's too heavy. I, you know what I'm saying? There's an endless array <laughs> of things. So I do think it is sort of it has. Be, I mean, in the state is saying the municipalities used to say, well, we're not responsible for this part of the pipe that's on private property. Um, we will take care of our portion of the pipe. The state in the research has backed this up that replacing part of the pipe makes it worse because you're disturbing that line. You're trying to reconnect new copper to old lead and there's some kind of metallurgy there that I do not understand, but it makes it worse. It's not great. And um, so a lot of cities take out their portion and go, 
we did our part, but in the meantime, it's actually made it worse. Um, so it's it's been on property owners to do that. The state has come down and said it's on municipalities, and that's not yet been settled in court. Mm. And then the other shortcoming really is the EPA has not done anything. So there's that. There's federally, there's not, I mean, there's been no changes at all. Um, some EPA people that I talk to say that's fine because Donald Trump is in office and they would rather not redo regulations like this while he is president. That's what I've been told. Uh, I wonder if you think this would have happened the same way in another community, um, a community that wasn't as poor as Flint, a community that wasn't as overwhelmingly African-American as Flint. Favorite question. Yeah. I mean, of course it wouldn't. Yeah, well, tell us. No, I mean, I really don't think, uh, I think it could have happened in a Benton Harbor. Yep. Could have happened in a Muskegon Heights. Yep. Any of the cities that I saw emergency managers take, I I think the same thing could have happened in any any of those cities. Because when you are allowed to usurp power in that way um, and really be in control of everything, um, and your bottom line is the money that, and that's that's that is the the point. It's to avoid. It is state bankruptcy. It's state receivership. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have a judge there that's kind of doing this balance of, okay, well, these creditors get this and these this interest over here. Well, you guys got to fight that out and, you know, behind the scenes and kind of hash this stuff out. If you have an emergency manager calling the shots, they're state appointed and they answer to the governor. It definitely creates a situation where um, all kinds of things can be. I mean, in Muskegon Heights, they got away with having uncertified teachers for like a year before anybody caught on to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they got all kinds of fines. But like in the meantime, those kids don't get that year back or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's just there's a lot of things that are overlooked in those situations. Okay, Lindsay Smith, thanks for being here. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.
Because of your support, WDET is able to celebrate the culture of our region. Musician and educator Elvin Waddles. I love this city. I've been fortunate to work with the late, great Aretha Franklin. Um, I was actually minister of music at her father's church, New Bethel, for years. I'm proud to be a part of it. God knows the, the musical legacy in Detroit. I mean, it's all here. It all has roots here. Make your year-end tax-deductible gift now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338.